This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. This is not a diving podcast, but Scuba. Welcome to the show. I'm Scuba. This is the Not a Diving Podcast. Okay, so last few weeks we've been kind of teasing the idea of launching a subscription service to support the pod. And next week we're going to be launching that. So final details to come next week, but it's going to be on Patreon. And there's going to be a bunch of different ways in which you can participate in that the main pod will still be free to air so we're not putting a paywall up for this at all but if you feel like you want to support us then there will be a mechanism to do so and there'll be also other ways or other tiers as they call it on patreon that you can join to get more stuff basically so it's going to be for example bonus podcasts, some of which will be AMA pods. So we're going to be launching next week with an AMA pod in addition to the regular podcast, which will be out on the regular feeds. So if you want to ask me a question on that AMA pod, you can do that on the Discord, hotfreshrecordings.com slash Discord, or on Twitter at scubaofficial. Or I guess you could do it on Instagram as well. That's also at scubaofficial. We'll do it on the... Uh, the post that supports this episode but probably twitter or the discord is going to be the best way of doing that so yeah hold tight for next week we're making the basic tier as cheap as possible because i don't want to be gouging here but i mean it does cost me money to put it on every week to get this 
content together and we want to have some budget to help grow it too so that's the motivation for doing a subscription thing and um yeah it would mean a lot to me if uh if you got involved with it to the extent that you can obviously don't put yourself out too much financially I don't want you to be going broke as a result of this but yeah we are doing this starting next week so yeah keep your eyes out for that anyway on the show this week we have one of my favorite producers it's Lavon Vincent he is a Berlin resident, but definitely from New York City, although as we find out, he actually grew up in Newark, just over in New Jersey. But yeah, he's someone who has been an inspiration to me for a long time production-wise, and he's also an interesting guy, generally speaking. He's been through a few things over the years, which will uh, indicate that he's an interesting guy, but um, it was great to catch up with him in a really detailed way on the show this week when we touch loads of different topics, including quite a lot on the New York club scene of the 1990s, which is a topic that we're going to be discussing a bit more in subsequent episodes over the next few weeks. So yeah, I display my total lack of knowledge on this podcast. I mix up the sound factory and the tunnel at one stage and call it the uh, the sound tunnel, which is when I was listening back, I was like, wow, you are really dumb. But uh, instead of going and editing it, I'm just flagging it up here. So when I say that, just be aware that I am aware that I am dumb. <laughs> anyway, Lavon is super knowledgeable on that topic because he was a DJ playing out regularly in the mid-90s. He played at Limelight a lot and various other venues. So he knows his shit as far as that's concerned. So it's great to be able to pick his brain on it. And just New York, generally speaking, in the 80s and 90s, which is a very different place to how it is now so yeah i think we'll just dive in i reckon at this point just before we do that leave us a review or a rating or if you're listening to this hit that five star button already mentioned the discord hotfreshrecordings.com slash discord and follow the spotify playlist link in the show notes whole bunch of levon vincent classics in there this week to the extent that they are on spotify and he has recently put some music up on spotify otherwise he was Pretty much straight Bandcamp guy, certainly as far as digital is concerned. But yeah. Anyway, without further delay, here is Levon Vincent. Levon Vincent, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm excellent. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. Are you in Berlin at the moment? I, I am. I'm sitting here on my couch and... Uh... Um, I've pulled all the curtains shut, so we have like no exterior sound or anything. It's pretty <laughs> quiet in here, and so we should be able to make a pretty good recording. Okay, cool. Okay, I got a question just straight out of the gate, just to get going. Okay. Which concerns the way you release your music. I mean, I've been going through your catalogue today, and I've always followed you on Bandcamp, actually, but then I had a look around on the streaming services, and I noticed that you've started putting some stuff up on Spotify, for example. Yeah, I, uh, just like a week ago. Right, so I noticed that on your Bandcamp releases, it says published by Levon Vincent Music, right? And actually, actually um, the, the publishing argument is kind of just as fraught on the streaming platforms as the recorded site. There's this ongoing argument that's been rumbling on about how the publish, publishing royalties site, well, essentially performance royalties, or the equivalent of, should be significantly higher as well as 
the just the master side payback on streaming that see that that's what that's where i'm coming from is that i've been getting checks for my publishing by the way if you're a, a record label and you're not a publisher uh, get it's not hard to do and you need to be your own publisher because if i were to estimate i i think i've made more money from the publishing than i have from record sales you know and uh, i i think it might be maybe 10 or 20 percent higher um so you know you don't just put if you're running a label you don't just put something out there into the ether um without going after your it's i don't even want to call it going after it's not that you literally just sit back and collect payments so it's it's not um you just need to be registered as a sole proprietor and or whatever the, your the variation that is in your country um you know with your tax people you know it takes like a few days to set up and maybe like five bucks 500 bucks to a lawyer set it up and then um you know what's so what's so important to me what has always been important to me is um controlling my music and my artwork you know what i mean and um a big step of that is uh as a a record label and a a musician is uh your publishing i mean that's like uh, it's half of it right it's a must it's it's half of your record it's 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 half of um your total income from music sales you know what i mean it's about half so it's important and it's not only about money it's about peace of mind as well because when you copyright your music when you have these things in place then uh, nobody that's uh, opportunistic can can come along and use your music without uh, your permission maybe to sell a, a product that you know um, maybe if you're a vegetarian for example you don't you don't want a shoe company selling um, using your song on uh, yeah, sure. An advert yeah. to to sell uh, leather shoes. You know what I mean? Those those type of things. You know those type of things. It may come. It may never come. A situation like that. But uh, you sleep better knowing that you're you're taking care of those elements of the the business. It's not hard. It's not hard. It takes a week, maybe five hundred bucks to a lawyer, and then you're up your own publishing company. It's if you run a record label, you you have to do that. It's I strongly recommend it. And there's money in it. So all of the above. Definitely recommend it. I'm with BMI. That's an American. Um, there are two American ones for independence, ASCAP and BMI. They're, they're a little different. Uh, I couldn't tell you the differences, but um, but at the time I was studying with a lot of the, the jazz guys in New York, you know, and they all use BMI. So that's they. when I went to a couple of my mentors, um, that's what I was advised. Now I can advise you, you know, the listener. Um, if you're an American artist who's selling under 5,000 copies of a record at a time, go with BMI. They tend to, what I'm told, they tend to um, go after the smaller quantity artists, you know. Um, whereas ASCAP, they go after small quantities too. But I mean, well, the way it was explained to me was like, if you're selling five, ten thousand or more each time you do a record, then, that, then ASCAP would be better for you. You know what I mean? So that, that's the way it was explained to me from somebody that I admire and trust. And so I went with BMI, you know. Yeah, that stuff's important. You got to keep, gotta keep all that stuff because you have to understand that you're making your, your body of work. It's going to be important when you're older. It's going to be important to you. You know what I mean? So, yeah, try to make it as best you can. Absolutely. And has that 
sort of idea of control been important to you from early on then? Like, when did you engage with that side of it? Because you've been running novel for a, a long time now, right? When was the first novel release? The first novel, some was in 2008. Yeah. Um, well, I did, uh, I did have a record label before that. And I did five, uh, one of which I turned around and sold to Ovum. It was a really big record for, for them. Oh, that was, um, in like remind maybe, me the title. I know the one you mean. Oh, in fact, actually, I think you made a record right after me. On the, I think I was number, uh, I don't remember now. I'm pretty sure Scuba Record came next on Ovum. That must have been 2006. Right. Am I right about that? Did You, you made a record for them, right? You know what? I'm, I think you're thinking of the King Brit Scuba alias. So, so King Brit used to make records as Scuba, right? Which is which oh, is something. Oh, just, I, I, I'm sorry, no, no, I didn't no, no, no. It's, it's funny because it, I, I always thought that you had been just making no uh, well, j- do, jazzy jazzy books. house. No, <laughs> it's really funny because I've never talked about this. No, I mean I know what I know. I know about your history with um, with dubstep and things, but I, I I always assumed that you were. Making because I, when I've heard your DJ, you've played house oh, yeah, music. Oh yeah, I mean, I've I heard absolutely you play have played house music. Yeah, yeah. No, but it's, it's it is really funny you say that because I've I have never talked about that publicly, and I, I Kimber and I know each other, but we've never talked. Okay. To, we've never talked about it either. Well, it can only help both of you, <laughs> <laughs> right? Exactly. I mean, you know, it can only help both of you. That's both quality work. But you know? if I can just explain to to the listener. Um, essentially what happened was that he had this alias going back to the 90s actually which he didn't use very often and it was just it was kind of very deep house kind of quite jazzy a little bit different to his other stuff and I wasn't aware of it at all and I was obviously making my early stuff which was which was dubstep and we had this brief period of about a year I think the, the record you're referring to it was is the last one he did under that name I see and and my first so it's like a little overlap right and my first scuba release had come out the year before that um, but I didn't start making housey type stuff until like 2011 by by which time his scuba alias was kind of long gone so I guess he never bothered to pull me up on it yeah and and it's just now just become this thing which was like I said it's never <laughs> never been addressed but like anyway that's I mean I could say those record that record was good the one he did Well I'll on, happily on, take that, credit that for that it that particular you know? one he's he Yeah 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 well I mean you know I don't know about taking credit but you know <laughs> uh, like you know um it, it, you know, it spreads the scuba name. You know what I mean? You can't help but overlap sometimes. I, I just released a record called Silent Cities, mm. you know? Right, right, and, right. Yeah. Um, and uh, I went to uh, Bleep to see if they had it in stock, you know? I was going to the record shops after I sent the cassettes out to see if they made it there yet. So I type in Silent Cities. And uh, someone else made a record called Silent Cities um, a year ago, you know? So... So and I and uh, to me it was an original name. Of course, uh, it came out of my brain, but uh, it, you just can't help but um, overlap sometimes. And so I, I kind of was like, ah, shit, you know. But what what can you do? You know what I mean? Because you have to just keep moving. You have to keep it moving. You can't. Right. There, aside from like a, a, a Google search these days, you know, to maybe make sure something like that doesn't happen. Otherwise. You know how can you possibly anticipate that? You know what I mean. So yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, but uh, I mean, just just the volume of stuff that comes out now means there's going to be overlaps in in tiles. But I mean, with tune tiles, certainly, you know. I'll I'll tell you with King Brit, there could be way worse dudes to get confused oh, with because sure. he's super big talent. You know what I mean. So I mean, you know, and and uh, at least you're being. If you ever did get confused, it's like with 
a good record. You know what I mean? <laughs> Not like, you know, because it could go the other way and be like, you know, slop. You know what I mean? Right. But at least that. But yeah. anyway, my, my, going back to my question, which was, um, yeah. you, you were just about to talk about your, your label prior to, to novel. So, so what was that called? Oh, uh, yeah. More music. More music, New York. Right. Yeah. Oh, no, I'm sorry. More records, New York. More records. More records, New York. Um, that label, uh, I had some success with it. I learned a lot too. And uh, I set up my publisher for that label. So that's how long I've been doing it, you know. You know, I also, that, success, that label wasn't successful either. And in fact, when Novel Sound started, uh, we ground up the, um, the first Novel Sounds are pressed on the ground up more oh, really? Wow. <laughs> Literally. Yeah, because okay. we, we, I, I was sitting on them and I couldn't sell them. And it just, I was like, it was at a moment in my career where I felt like pivotal moments, you know, it was a crossroads. And so it was like, well, what are we going to do here? You know, I don't want to throw in the towel, but, you know, you know, I, I need to um, try a new, to try something new, you know. So, yeah, that was when Novel Sound came. We'd ground up all the other ones and turned them into novel sound records. <laughs> so that was you. You were still living in New York then, I believe. You moved to Berlin in two thousand and ten. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah, that sounds about yeah. right. So, um, but I want. I want. I really. I'm interested in talking about your kind of formative period in New York because one of the things we've been doing on the show is kind of talking about the history of scenes and particularly scenes in that kind of nineties period yeah without wanting to without wanting to get too sort of nostalgic about it but just trying to kind of get down people's direct experiences of those those things and obviously new york is a was a super pivotal place to be in that period yeah so and i and i know you were you were djing a lot right in the 90s which i didn't know until today when i read a bunch of interviews with you <laughs> so tell yeah tell me tell me about it well i i i had local success i had local success i wasn't I never had played outside of the city, you know, but I did have local success. But that was pre-Giuliani. You, you know about Giuliani, what he did to the city? So this is something else that I learned today in reading interviews with you. So yeah, I absolutely want to hear about this. But tell me about your successful period before Giuliani fucked up for everyone. That was over at Limelight. I was playing at Limelight. I played at the shelter a couple of times. These are like, these are, these are the clubs. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. The, this is like the clubs, you know what I mean? So I was getting in my foot in the door there, opening up, you know. A um, couple times I played like, a couple times at shelter, I played like some peak time, you know what I mean? Packed room. At Limelight, they had me over there opening. Um, so that, that would mean like back then I was like 10 to 12, you know what I mean? And both, both, of, both of those clubs and that, those experiences for me were like very, very uh, informative and also just totally got me hooked. You know what I mean? There was, there was never going to be any turning back after I s actually got on the decks, you know what I mean? Um, there was a guy who, his name was Arthur Weinstein. Um, he passed away. But he, he used to own a club called The World, and he did the lights over at the limelight. And uh, 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 DJ Prozac, uh, Zach, who was like um, a, a completely unsung and totally underrated hero from the 90s techno scene um, in New York. This is like late 90s, not like when we were... 
dressed up like Sesame Street characters, like going to rave parties in the, in, the, in like 92, you know what I mean? Like, you know, stuffed animals hanging off our backpacks and stuff. But in like 94, 95, um, I mean, Zach was there for that. But when he, when he was really a very big influence on the New York techno scene and, and uh, globally was when he was involved with um, a label from Munich, Disco B. It was called Disco B, and he was involved with those guys. Yeah, Prozac, um, Arthur Weinstein, the record shops. Back then, the record shops were a big deal, you know, because you would go to the record shops and people would be there hanging out, talking. What were the key shops in New York back then? I used to go to 8-Ball. I used to go to 8-Ball. That's where I got my dub plates made back a very long time. Early, really? Early, wow. Okay. Like 93, 92, 93. Um, I used to love 8-Ball. There was a shop. I've actually supposed speaking with Honey Dijon last time I saw her a long time ago. I haven't seen her in a long time. But I was trying to remember the name of a shop on, um, I want to say like 20th and 8th. But uh, it's been too long. I don't remember. There was a shop there that I liked. And, of course, I worked I, I worked for Tower in the early 90s, uh, Tower Records. And I also worked for Kim's. Which was Kim's was a great shop for me about learning about the business, the, the, uh, the business of independent artists. Actually, you want to know something? You, you asked me about my first label, and what you were really asking me was about where I got the idea for control or why, why that became important to me. And actually, I, I learned all of that from working at Kim's Underground, which was a shop on Bleecker Street that um, was open probably until 94. Four or ninety-five, and um, my my time working there was was um, where I spoke to enough independent artists. I mean, you know, one thing in New York, the the thing about New York, the reason I don't know if all cities are like this, as special as every city is that I've been to, but the one thing in New York is that everybody that you meet, whatever shitty job they're doing, they're really good at something in the arts or in industry or whatever it is they're doing. You know, so so everyone that you're involved with is that's not what they're doing with their lives. They're trying to get somewhere else. Every restaurant you work at, every record shop you work at, all these people you, you, everyone you are working with in New York is trying to get somewhere else, you know? So that is a source of inspiration, but also you just learn things. You know, just learn things that way, you know. There's a lot of, I guess you would call it, hmm, I don't know the word, acculturization or... Right, I, I, know, I know what you mean, I know what you're getting at, yeah. I, know, I don't know the word, but you know, you, you, at least in my experience in New York, if you work at a record store, you're going to be working with a jazz musician who's the best at, in his, with his instrument, you know, and a drummer who's the best at, you know what I mean? It's going to be like that, you know what I mean? And that was my case, was um, working with other guys and seeing they, they were further along and seeing what they were doing. I knew a guy that was involved with um, Grand Royale, which was uh, the label that Beastie Boys were doing at the time. And um, just seeing how these guys were dealing with distributors and how these guys were dealing with publishing and licensing and things like that, you know, it was just... Um, kind of mimicking what I saw. I saw what was important to other guys doing independent things, you know? I also had a couple in... Back then, I also would do things like um, try to 
go to Nemesis or Watts, the distributors at the time, I, I, I would help out guys like just carry boxes. You know what I mean? Like I, I, I've been with other bigger DJs and just bring their, they were making records and they would have to bring it over. And I would be the guy unloading the van that they rented. You know what I mean? Like just doing things like that, just to, just to, um, you know, you're, you're not going to get anywhere unless you, you have to just get out there and do it. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's just to be involved in any way, right? It's just yeah. immersing yourself. Yeah. You just have to learn. I mean, you got, you got to do the grunt work. You know what I'm saying? You, you got to, you know what I mean? Or, or maybe you get lucky and find a higher position to start out. But most people, when they start out, you have to just do anything you can. You know what I mean? So I did all that stuff. You know what I mean? And I saw how they did it and I saw the troubles they were having. You know what I mean? So, you know, I, I've seen instances where guys um, d- didn't get paid properly. You know what I mean? Or a, or a distributor that owed them six months or, or six releases worth of back pay uh, <laughs> would have folded. You know what I mean? Let me, interu- let me interrupt you there and say that this podcast has been just a catalogue of those stories. Like so many people I've had on yeah. have had that story from, from the, uh, mostly from the kind of late 90s era where they've been doing really well and everything's going along really great. And then suddenly the distributor goes down and they lose, you know, two years of sales or however, however long, some astronomical sum of money. Yeah, that just seems to happen to any, everyone by then. Yeah, it's like maybe you're, you're, you're living day to day and you don't have much money but there there is someone that owes you 40 grand out there you know what i mean or you know i mean back then records used to sell so it would be 40 grand you know what i mean it's you know back then records used to sell you know what i mean five thousand copies was you know not so uh, you know unheard of back then you know what i mean ten thousand thirty thousand some records oh yeah happened you know if you had a hit back then like a masters at work record back then so Probably 30,000 30, copies, I imagine. But yeah, you know, um, I, I, I saw a lot of that stuff happen. And um, I'm happy to say that I, I've, in my career, not had those experiences, you know. Um, I don't have really any complaints and I don't have any tragic things to talk about, you know. I've been able to uh, maintain, I, I've done the impossible, actually. I, I am an independent artist who has survived independently f- for uh, over a decade and made, you know, 50 records, you know? So it's, I... I, I um, yeah, you're doing something right, definitely. I have almost no complaints, you know what I mean? Let me, let me ask you, though, slightly more specifically, first of all, that period that you were working at Kim's that you said was so pivotal, like, when was that? And also, I also want to go back a little bit further and, and just ask you about how your what your route directly into music was, but maybe you can, if you, if you think it's more useful to go back to the start first, but like, yeah, tell me about this. I, I think that was 90, 1994 or maybe 1993. Got it. So, so how was your, what was your, what was your route into music in the, in the first place? Uh, well, uh, we had a piano when I was uh, born. There was, I was playing piano. I used to bang on it with my fists, you know what I mean? As a baby. And, um, ah, well, I, I think I've told this story before, I, but, I, I do remember my, my uncle played. He was a pianist, you know. And um, I already loved playing piano uh, as a baby. And, but what I would do is bang on it. You know what I mean? And, and I loved it. You know what I mean? But I, rem- I, I remember when he was visiting once and he spread my fingers out and it, uh, to play. It was C major, you know. And that was so uh, like 
like a sky a hole in the sky opening. You know what I mean? It just it just was like it was like the it was like an amazing moment that I still remember from being a baby, where the, this now this piano like was went from being a toy to like this thing was magical. You know what I mean? It was you know I don't know how else to describe it. It just was like beyond an eye opener. You know, for a young a very young ch- child. You know what I mean? And I've been hooked on music ever since. I mean, that was really when I... And then the DJing comes from my parents because my mother and father both had milk crates with their record collections and you weren't allowed to mix them up. And they were very serious about it. And I I used to love going through them and playing them. And uh, they got me my own record player um, when I was younger by Fisher Price. So I used to play their records. I loved that. I definitely love that. And that never stopped. I mean, because back then I used to pick like based on the artwork, you know what I mean? And that's not so different from DJing with records when you may not remember the name of a track, but you're like in the moment and you're like, I need that blue one with the yellow writing on it, you know? Yeah, so, yes, I agree. Yeah. <laughs> and um, yeah, I played trumpet in school orchestra. Love trumpet players. Miles and Chet Baker, Miles Davis, of course. So all that stuff was like laid out for me. It was like already there. It's like kid going to candy. All I was doing was just like it was there. You know what I mean? So I I feel very lucky about that. And um, yeah, like I said, I got into I, I... I, I got into DJing by going and hassling people and asking a thousand questions. Everybody knew me in New York. All the record stores knew me at that age because I was very young. I was a very young kid. The thing is, what you have to understand is before I ever got into techno, uh, we, I, I lived in New Jersey as a kid, right outside of Newark, about one, one, one and a half miles from the, the Trade Center. And uh, the, the bus to New York... The Port Authority stopped on my street in front of my house. <laughs> so I was like uh, 10 the first time I did that on my own, you know? Wow, really? Yeah, I, I, I had done it with my parents already and I knew how to do it. I mean, it's like literally you just get on the bus and it ends at Port Authority, you know? So I, I got a taste for the city at a very early age and um, it melded perfectly with... My parents never knew that, by the way. Okay, right. Even late, like I, I did that for years. Like, snuck into New York as at like ten and eleven years old. You know that. So that that gave me like, that's how I got addicted to the city. You know what I mean? Um, and I used to look at the, you could see the Trade Center every day on the way to school. You know, and on the way home, in the bus on the school bus. You know what I mean? So it's like always just calling to me. Um, and my, the first, when I first got addicted to the city was skateboarding. That's like what I would go into the city and do. But by the time I was like, I don't know, I don't remember like eight, 17 or 18 and was really serious about records. I, I was already, I knew all the record store. I knew them all. You know what I mean? Um, I was already there asking a million questions and all of that. So it wasn't that hard a transition for me because people, people knew that I had the 
the passion and the dedication already, and they wanted to see me. So when I wanted to get a record store and a record job, it was easy. They already knew me. You know, it was like let me let me ask you um, a question at this point. Like, what what were the records that you were buying like before you even thought about working at one of these stores? Like, what what were you buying? What were you into? Uh, well, um, during when I was really heavy into skateboarding, I, Public Enemy was my favorite. And that's not only me. Everybody at back then the company was called Shut. Shut Skates was kind of like kind of like Supreme is today. You know what I mean? It was like the East Coast style, which is like hip hop and skateboarding and street skateboarding. You know what I mean? Um, so that that company Shut. I, I had a couple of friends that were sponsored by them, and that was. But more than that, it was like a status thing, and it was just exciting to be around. You know what I mean? Um, to be around those guys and to be around that, you know. And so, Public Enemy, of course, uh, the Beasties. I love the Beastie Boys. Always have and Run DMC. Love, love Run DMC. LL Cool J. I loved that. Cannot survive without my radio. I had that record. And um, Tommy Boy. This is all before house music, though. This is like when I was a kid, really kid, like a kid. You know what I mean? Sure. Uh, like ten. You know what I mean? That's when these records were big, streetwise. A label. You know, what's funny is there's one record called Summertime by Nocera. You know that record? I don't actually, no. It's like an old freestyle record, I, I, I guess. Oh, maybe I do actually. Maybe I do. I, I mean, I've, I've got so much old freestyle that, that Summertime rings about. Summertime, yeah. summertime, yeah, take me. Dun, dun, dun. Uh, well, I love, that's one record that I love because I knew that it was like, I, I knew it was sung like the tuning wasn't great. You know what I mean? Like as a trumpet player or as a, you know, like I knew, I, I knew that the, the t- it was like the tuning was weird on it, but that it was glorious. You know, I loved the way it was. And come to find out years later, it was, uh, I didn't know this at the time, but Arthur Russell ran Sleeping Bag. Oh, right. Oh. I, I didn't know that. And Sleeping Bag put out the Mantronics records too, which I loved Mantronics. That's like, have you ever heard of Baseline by Mantronics? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the first time I ever heard of 303 right. was in the bass line. It was for me as well, actually, when I think about boom, it. Boom, 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 boom. Yeah. Yeah, that's the first 303. But that's someone actually took the time to program that like a bass line. You know what I mean? It doesn't sound like squiggly acid. It sounded like, you know. Yeah, it's not just like on the 16s, right? It was like a melodic, don't, 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 you know, like a bass line. You know what I mean? So somebody, now I look back and think somebody programmed that 303. To play bass, somebody like you know, but um, but that 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 stuff was uh, the product of Arthur Russell's mind. You know, he was producing those records and managing that label, so I didn't know that back then. So, were you into free? Were you into freestyle? Yeah, I liked freestyle. Yeah, freestyle. So okay, so so freestyle is something that I've always just loved the sound of, but I have absolutely no idea about what the scene was like and and you know the whole thing. So can you? Oh, me neither. Can, oh, right. Okay, I was going to ask you to enlighten me. I can't tell you about the scene. No, no, I can't tell you about the scene. I was like, that's like ten and eleven years old. But I was buying those records. Yeah, yeah, fair, fair enough. Uh, you know, I was buying those records, but um, I, I can't tell you about that. That's before my time. I can just tell you. Yeah, fair. I can just. I actually did do an internship with the freestyle guy later um, when I was like twenty. John Roby's brother, or is it John Roby's brother? Um, you know John Roby. He made a lot some big records, and I did study with the guy that produced Man Parish's record when I got older. Right. So I I did go older when I was older and find some of the people that made 
the, the records I liked and, and go, go learn from them, you know. But, um, but I, I, as far as the scene, what I can tell you is that every kid in the tri-state area in 1985 wanted to break dance. That was just the coolest thing ever. And freestyle came out of the break, break dancing, you know what I mean? The break dancing records was like um, less electronic, a lot of them like actual funk funk records like uh like the Mexican that's like the quintessential breakdance record you know the Mexican yeah but uh the freestyle that also had a pop element cuz i love pop music i i've always loved pop music with smart lyrics you know pop music with smart lyrics i've always loved well, it i mean that was a great era of uh, smart pop music yeah yeah you know but when you hear a record like a e a e i o u u and sometimes why you know that had a big impression on me that was a big freestyle record that had a big impression on me because i remember them i remember thinking that that it was clever that they used the the alphabet to to sell their melody you know so that's stuff like those little things that like every artist has their own version of an experience like that you know what i mean definitely that a-e-i-o-u and um, Shannon, let the music play. You know that one. Let the music yeah, play. Yeah, great track. The, this this record was like, okay. Here's the thing. Here's here's okay. Here's something that had a big influence on me, and that is Def Jam, because Def Jam. See, I thought Def Jam was way cooler than Streetwise. You know what I mean? Mm. Um, because as much as I like Streetwise, not not to not to diminish Streetwise or anything, but but I loved Def Jam because they didn't have any melodies. Right. Those records was just a guy and a drum machine. Exactly. You know, and they sounded hard. They sounded really hard that way, you know? Um, so that, that's something that, that I took with me. It's like, you don't need, I can put it into words now. I couldn't even put it into words then. I just knew like this sounded, the energy level was higher somehow. And, you know, it's like what I took with me that I can put into words now is you can, you can do more with less. You know what I mean? So, yeah, I got that from the Def Jam records. That's why you don't, you know, a lot of my records aren't really sounding overproduced. You know what I mean? It's maybe not that many elements, but I'll, I'll work the elements. You know what I mean? And that's something that I probably, my first eye opener was like hearing the radio songs and stuff and then hearing Def Jam and saying, well, well why is this different? You know, I don't hear any, I don't hear any, melody there's like not even bass lines you know what i mean in some of these it's just raw you know so i love that it's, it's funny you say that about it's funny you say that about your music because that's exactly how i think about your music like in a, in a really positive way you know like that it's raw yeah and like you're able to do a huge amount with seemingly not much you know and and i and i love the way you use the stereo field with that as well because like I, I find listening to your tracks on headphones is super interesting to me because you you have a lot in mono I find but then when you use like wider stereo it's like it's super impactful I've I've had that experience quite a few times listening to your listening to your tracks and that yeah thank you so much <laughs> thank you so much man thank you Paul and it just resonated with what you just said about about those Def Jam records because that yeah it joins the dots oh I'm giving you a piece to the puzzle. I'm absolutely telling you the the the, the real stuff right now. Um, I'm that's a big piece. I, I'm not kidding. I I was uh, uh, really influenced by that era of hip hop. You know, so um, yeah, the rawness of it. I loved it. 
Public Enemy 2, that was a couple years later. But um, Public Enemy 2, um, when I first heard that, it's like a teacup sound in, um, oh man, Rebel Without a Pause. Yep. You know what I'm talking about? The teacup sound? It's actually like a sample of a one of James Brown. James Brown had a label called People Records. And it's a sample of like, it's probably Fred Wesley or one, one of the people from the, uh, one of the bands from the, the People roster. But the, the way Public Enemy took that on Rebel Without a Pause, that is another thing that I heard and I was just like mesmerized by the technique. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Yeah, yeah. The, you know, and my mother, my mother's taste then was, um, she liked the Smiths, Sinead O'Connor. Right. Robin Hitchcock and the Egyptians, Sonic Youth. I don't know what else. Um, I don't know. She used to Susie and the Banshees. She used to play all that stuff in the car on the way to school and stuff like that. You know what I mean? So I like a lot of that stuff too. She taught me. She um, we used to take turns, and I could play some of mine, and she would play some of hers. You know what I mean? And that was what she was into at the time. She also had records, you know, interestingly enough, she had some pretty cool records like the Bush Tetras, you know. Um, she had Bush Tetras records and some of that stuff that, that uh, now, this, I mean, when I, was a, when I was very young, looking through her records, she had these records that I heard as an eight years old, you know what I mean? Records like, um, yeah, what else? Uh, Pulse Lama, the, the Bush Tetras, um, it's what they sold as, oh, what was, they called it No Wave back then, No Wave. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, which is like kind of like just barely not disco, you know what I mean? Yeah. So it's like, a, you know, how another step of dance music to me it was like those No Wave records, you know? Yeah, my mom, my mom had some pretty cool records, so did my dad, you know? So I, I feel like I was off to a good start with a lot of that and, and a variation, you know, because I was into the, what the kids were into. And then I was also getting these like, oh, the Talking Heads. They had a lot. I liked the Talking Heads records a lot, stuff like that, you know. So you put all that together and, you know, try to, that's what I try to do is like, it's raw, but maybe I'll try to reference like, because all those 80s things, the, the the sonic youths or whatever they were using referencing like literature and stuff like that or like a famous artist you know what i mean stuff like that you know what i mean they weren't talking about they weren't talking about topical issues you know hip hop was talking about um topical issues you know what i mean issues of the day yeah i mean that that era of hip hop was just pure politics right yeah um but uh, the 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 that other stuff was more poetic and like you know, somewhere if you put that together, that's like why, why I like to do my own artwork on the records and stuff like that. You know what I mean? So like if the music's raw, then like maybe the record artwork will be like a painting I've made or, you know what I'm saying? Like, so, and that's coming from the, the influence of my, my parents' records and what they were teaching me about, you know? So try to put that all together. And then, you know, what, you, what I am is just like a working artist, you know? So, but tell me how house eventually kind of came into this kind of melting pot of influences that you've just been describing when you were a kid because you know as a dj presumably you were playing at least house influence stuff initially so well i started with house music i i i, I wasn't djing 
I wasn't DJing before that. Yeah, I never DJed hip hop or anything like that. I I was riding my skateboard listening to hip hop. <laughs> right. No, when when I got into DJing, it was to play house music, you know. And um I got into house music from uh Jungle Brothers, Al House. Okay. Too. I had the Jungle Brothers record. The Jungle Brothers was a hip hop was a hip hop group, you know? Of course. And um yeah, that's one of the ones that maybe like really say, wow, you know, and of course the Todd Terry record can you party? That 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 Todd Terry record is uh, like the same as my uncle holding my hand open to play C major for the first time. Right. The first time I heard the Todd Terry record, that was made me like get so excited about the music and stuff. It was kind of a weird time, honestly, because it wasn't um, like now you look back and you know the whole story. You know what I mean? But we didn't know the whole story, you know? I mean, um, I knew that Todd Terry was making the records and um, there was a DJ called Red Alert in New York that would occasionally play some kind of crossovers things and you could hear it on the radio, you know? But um, it wa- it wasn't, it was just sounded like four on the four freestyle. It just sounded like the next year of evolution of you know, of what club music already was, you know what I mean? Street street music, whatever you want to call it, you know? Um, so it was already evolving. This is really interesting. So so what 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 year are we talking here now when you when you're thinking about that? Uh maybe nineteen eighty eight, eighty nine, eighty uh maybe yeah, nineteen eighty nine. Put it this way, Bat Dance. Bat Dance by Prince was like the biggest record at the time. And that's that's when I heard, um, I, I mean, I remember going to see the movie Batman and, uh, and hearing in the car, can you, the Todd Terry record for the first time. Oh, wow. So whatever year that was. I don't know what year that was. It was 89. I remember it because I, I went to see it too. I was obsessed with that, <laughs> that movie. Oh, really? And yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm a little bit younger than you, but not that much younger. So yeah, I absolutely remember this stuff. Yeah. Yeah, Bat Dance. It was like the big, the Bat Dance was the biggest song at the time, you know? It was a Prince record, you know? And that was the, that was dominated the radio and dominated everything else. So whatever year that was, that was when I heard, um, cause we were going to see the Batman movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What I was going to, what I was going to interrupt you to say was we had a guy called Gerald on the show and he was talking about this period, but in Manchester. So he was describing his experiences going to, dance clubs which i guess is the sort of british equivalent of that sort of break dancing kind of thing but not not yeah. not ex- not exactly the same but the same kind of thing yeah so you have this kind of culture which is completely dominated by guys doing crazy dances essentially when you kind of when you, when yeah, you break yeah. it down but then his his description of it was there was there was almost like a kind of a hard shift into acid house and what you've just described is a kind of more, much more of a kind of like evolutionary thing where things just kind of gradually melted into this kind of house scene. So is, is that a fair characterization? Yeah, in fact, we didn't call, in fact, we didn't even call it house music. We called it club music. Right. And um, back then you traded cassettes with other kids in school. You'd make um, trade cassettes, you know, but we called it club music. So, you know, it wasn't even until after the fact, you know, those records is like, um, Move your body, you know, like that. That's another one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we had those. Re- we had those on cassettes. Obviously, we were trading them at school, but uh, we called it club music. So, I guess every region's different, you know. Um, 
but we we didn't I didn't even I don't I didn't even hear it called house music I don't think until a couple couple years later like uh, by the time Frankie Knuckles playing in New York right. it was okay. called called house music obviously or if they were calling it house music I I didn't even hear that but we when we were trading those tapes and stuff was, we called it club music you know and that stuff was so exciting the other one was okay you got to understand I'm 13 at the time so um, or was I yeah. Um, yeah, 13, 14. Um, French Kiss. Yeah. <laughs> because that record was like a little dirty because it had kissing sounds in it. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, of course. Because if you don't, if the listener doesn't know, that record is like great house record and it slows down. The tempo literally slows down. In the <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's the one that slows down, right? <laughs> yeah. And then there's like, you hear some like moaning and some kissing sounds. Like, you know, that like people are, you know, and then it speeds up and the sounds get, you know. So as 13, we were like, that was like, you, this is pre-internet, so that was like, you know, <laughs> we you you didn't have access to stuff like that. You know what I mean? So I was like, man, you hear that record? They're having they're having. I think they're having sex on that record. You know, <laughs> yeah. you know what I mean? You know, because you know we didn't know. You know what I mean? You know, so that but that was a different time, I guess. With the internet now, people just kids have access to all that. But I remember that record was like, you know, that record was dirty. You know what I mean? But um, you know, so all that stuff was like funny memories of awkward. Uh, you know, awkward teenage years. You know what I mean? That's so, that's so funny because um, the idea, the, the other one for my kind of childhood in exactly the same time was was the first Guns N' Roses album, and people were saying that there was a track on that album where Axl Rose had some girl in the studio and like you know they were <laughs> recording some stuff, and it was exactly the same thing as a kid. You know what I mean? Like that's kind of titillation of it. You know? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, because you like the music, but you're also like. It's like you're you're just trying to put it all together. Like, well, so these people are like these badasses <laughs> exactly. that they're 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 doing whatever they're doing, like without a care for you know. I don't know. It's like seem rebel. What I'm saying is that it seemed rebellious to do that on a record. You know what I mean? Just as the Guns N' Roses obviously was very rebellious band. You know what I mean? So that stuff is exciting when you're little. You know what I mean? A hundred percent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You like you know, but um, I still follow some of that, like not following the rules. I love to do that. Like once, not not that I've released, but you know, you're supposed to avoid sibilances. Yeah. Here's an idea for a producer. Thank me if you make a good record with it. But uh, you know, you're supposed to avoid sibilances. You know, part of being a good lyricist is it's not only you know when you really get into the art of lyricism, and you know, some of that is avoiding sibilances, the words you choose, being selective, well, knowing when knowing when to use them. Right. Yeah. It's like not only having this massive words at your disposal, but like actually avoiding the sibilant sounds you know words with too many s's in it in real time while you're while you're thinking of it you know or while you're writing your lyrics um so but like for example i i made a record once where it was like every word started with s you know what i mean right (laughs) you know she sells seashells i can't even remember what i was saying it was about 20 years ago but that's a good exercise is to just like think of something that you're not supposed to do, that everyone knows you're not supposed to do, and do it. You know what I mean? Sometimes that can make it yield a pretty good record. You know, try some little things like that. Yeah, what I actually wrote a couple ideas because I didn't know what I would have to offer in the way of an interview, and I did write a couple things that I thought might be like, yeah, for Scuba Show. Okay. Okay. Here, here's one I I wrote down because. I, I, I like I was just thinking about DJing and producing and like it is there anything I could offer? Because 
It's like a, there's a YouTube video for everything. Right. You know what I mean? But I've never heard, uh, I've never heard another person talk about how to tune a room when you do a sound check. Right. And um, so I thought maybe that would be something to share, but I'll just tell you how I tune a room. Yeah, please. But when you go into a venue for the sound check, uh, there's one variable you can't account for, and that's the absorptive nature of human bodies, you know, because that, that does have an effect as well. You can't do anything about that um, when you're at sound check. But, um, you know, the reason to go and do a sound check and to feel the room out and stuff and to play, put your music on and go and listen on the dance floor, what you're actually, the, go, the goal is that you, you want the slap back that's in the room, the echo that's in the room, to be in the same time. If you're playing, if you know you play from 126 to 132 BPM over the night, you know, you want to go and put on a record and listen to your hi-hats and the, the claps while it's playing in the center of the room or wherever the sweet spot in the room is. And some nights you may see that playing slower is actually rhythmically makes more sense with the walls in the room. And you're going to get a lot better sound out of the room if you, so if you, if you, if you play from 125 to 135 BPM, if you're somewhere in that range when you play, like most DJs are, there's actually like a sweet spot with your BPM. And if you went, the reason to go and tune, tune a room at a sound check beforehand is so that you can figure this out, do this math, you know what I mean? Like um, make sure that the echo is in time with the, the record you're playing, you know? So that was one idea of just like, I was just trying to think of... That's really interesting. I'd never even considered that before. Man, it sounds way better if you, do, if you play in time with the room. You know, it sounds better. Yeah, I mean, it completely makes sense when you, when you put it like that. And, ob- and it's obvious, in fact. I mean, there's a lot of things on YouTube about DJing. Like I looked, I looked about how to DJ and stuff like I was thinking, like, is there anything I could offer? I ne- have never seen one video or anybody talking about how to tune a room. Mm. And that's what you're supposed to be doing when you tune a room, you know, so. Well, I didn't know that, so <laughs> thank you. <laughs> yeah, hopefully that helps some up-and-comers out there, you know what I mean? Or, or me as well, so yeah, thank you. <laughs> and um, What was the other thing you had? Oh, I got three of these. Okay, carry on. Okay, we were talking about the patronage system earlier, and I had an idea that I was kicking around, and th- um, that is that producers and DJs sell tracks to each other but like for a couple grand and you're the only one that gets to play it. You know what I mean? Ah, okay. It's like, you know, okay. selling the rights, writing a song for a, a DJ and selling it to them for a fee and they're the only one that gets to play it. You know, would be nice to see the industry move this way where a DJ that's uh, making six figures or more, you know, the, the, the DJs that are up there making three and 500 grand a year, they buy tracks and the rights um, for their DJ sets exclusively, uh, for their mix tapes exclusively um, from producers, you know? So, okay, let me, let me ask you then, because I was going to bring this up uh, at the top when we're talking about distribution methods and distribution platforms. What do you think about, well, do, have you heard about the A-Slice thing that DVS1 has launched, which is a kind of way of DJs voluntarily paying 
the producers whose records they play in their DJ sets a certain amount of um, the revenue they make from it, well, a certain amount of their DJ fee. Have you seen that? And what do you think about it? I uh, I, I I have uh, heard of it. He did uh, mention to me in an email that he was doing something, but I, I didn't know, I don't know much about it. It sounds great. It's, it sounds great. Yeah, it's along the same lines of what you've just sort of proposed, but on a non-exclusive basis, basically. Yeah. So essentially, the way the way it works is that they've built a they built a platform where you can upload as a DJ. What you can upload your playlist direct from Recordbox if that's what you're using, or you can obviously just mm-hmm. type it in manually, which then goes to their central database, and then you put in how much, however much money you want to donate from your DJ fee. They recommend like five percent or whatever. Uh-huh. Um, as a as a sort of manageable amount, I guess you know to try and encourage take up initially because five percent you know seems seems doable I guess, and then they built a system to distribute that money directly to producers who register on the on the platform. So it's a kind of quite an elegant. That sounds great. Yeah, it's a kind of elegant, well designed method for doing a similar sort of thing that that what you just suggested. So yeah, it's pretty cool. I uh, I play my my own music exclusively, so I don't it wouldn't I don't know that it would. Um... I don't know how that would work, but uh, if I was playing other people's music, then uh, I, I think, uh, especially in today's society, with so much, everyone has so much oversight that you would be a fool not to to do that. You know, um, really. So you only ever play your own music in your sets? Yeah, that's right. Nowadays, uh, some classics, some like maybe in three hours, I'll play one or two records from the eighties, but otherwise. Um, and even those have been edited, you know what I mean. But uh, but that was like a ten year transition for me. I I play uh, exclusively my own music now. I, in fact, I would say it's it's um, like now I'm doing what I've always set out to do. You know what I mean? Right. Even if I didn't know it when I was playing other people's music ten years ago, I was having a lot of fun doing that too. But it was like all steps to get to where all that was all learning lessons. Even you know. It was all to get to what I'm doing now, which is just playing my own music. It turns out, turns out, even maybe without me even specifically thinking that uh, ten years ago, that that that's what I love the most. You know what I mean? That's like where I feel the most. Uh, I, I feel like I'm really doing what I set out to do as a young person nowadays. You know what I mean? And that's playing my own stuff. You know, but you, but you know, you can't do that until you build a catalog. You know, you got to make fifty records before you can play them. You know what I mean? So that's something that, like, you know, that means I've put in, like, 10,000 hours a couple times over. You know what I mean? Something. I don't know how to express that. But it's it means that I'm, like, what I'm doing now is, like, at, I mean, you would call it master level, but it's that doesn't it sounds like bragging. You know what I mean? But it, it just means, like, I've come into my own. That's how to put it, you know. I've come into my own. Yeah, I mean, it's just a cu- accumulation of experience, right? As a, as a DJ, I've come into my own, and it took about... 20 or 30 years. But now I feel like what I do now is what I set out to do, you know? Yeah. So, but, uh, but that's off the point. The point was that um, if I was playing other people's music and there was an option to, to, uh, to donate some of my fee, I, I, I could see that um, working. Our, our DJs, uh, there, there's like an honor system element there. Are, are DJs doing it or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There has been, I mean, I, so I, I registered and as a producer and as a DJ, so I've only played a couple of shows since I registered. But um, you know, you can see as a on the producer side, 
you can see who's playing your tracks and I have been able to view like, you know, a, a few occasions on <laughs> people have played my tunes out, yeah. which is really interesting in of itself. It's great getting that data. Do you know what I mean? It, you know, you see yeah. what who the DJ is, where they played it, whatever, which is really great to just get that information. I mean, forget about the money. Like it's just super useful to know, like, you know, what tunes are being played. And then... Yeah, I would 100%. I will I will be using it 100% going forward on on the um on my DJ side. So yeah, it's just a great thing that he's done and and I th- I'm fairly sure there's been pretty decent take up. I mean, obviously when you're doing something like that and you're building it from the ground up, it's you know, it's a hard slog getting people on board, but I think they are making progress with it. That's good to hear. That's uh quite an undertaking. Yeah. That's like for sure. That's like savior of the industry type of stuff. Like that's that's pretty. You have to have a pretty big perspective to look at the problems and find a solution like that. That takes a a um, very agile uh, approach to things. That's like that's a, a, a leader. You know Absolutely. what I mean? If that's Zach doing that, if that's Zach doing that, that's like take taking a a leader role. You know, that's good. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's it's really really impressive what what he's done with it, and so it's him and a couple of other people, and the the platform they've built is you know, the software backend is really easy to use. It's really intuitive. Like it just ta- they've just taken down the barriers to entry on, on on that side of it, which is essential, you know, in getting people on board. Yeah. So yeah, I couldn't recommend it highly enough, really, to anyone any listener and and to you as well. Check it out. Yeah, absolutely. That uh, takes a lot of vision. That's cool. So what was the third thing on your list? Let me look. Something else. Oh, I, uh, I, a promoter told me recently that um, beat matching was, uh, had been called gatekeeping, <laughs> more or less. <laughs> which I thought was funny. That's the funniest you know? thing I've ever heard. But also, <laughs> like, yeah, um, like to take the element out. But then I, but then I thought about it and it's like, it's so cool that young people are like not letting anything stand in their way. You know what I mean? Like, sure. You know, you know what I mean? Cause that's the young mind is like the, the, the level of confidence and optimism to, to just say like what me and you, for example, might consider institutions like big matching, like f- lit- literal pillars of the building <laughs> yeah, of the construct, right. you know? <laughs> To just be like, nah, nah, we don't need that. But it's like, it's like using a calculator, right? To do long division, I suppose, is the way of looking at it. Yeah. You know, it's like, why, why, why would I, why would I do this bullshit kind of manual process when I can just hit a button? And- yeah, exactly. Like you old, you old fuckers. Yeah, you know exactly. what I mean? Yeah. But, but, you know, I, so it's like commendable, but I, my first reaction was like sh- of, sh- of being shocked. And then I had to think about it and like, okay, so this is, this is like how shit gets done. You, you, the youth, how they take over, you know what I mean? So I was like, okay, cool. You know, beat matching is gatekeeping, you know, but I just, I was so tickled by that. I thought it was so funny because that's like one of them. That was the th- like I was describing about rules and like there's just some things you don't do and maybe you just go and break all those. You know what I mean? That's the good example of that is just being like, no, we don't need beat matching. We don't even need that. You know? Yeah. So, um, but you know, uh, you know, without getting too negative, or, you know, obviously what they does get prioritized instead, like the social media or whatever, it's, it's like kind of 
sour to look at what what is more important than beat matching you know well okay so let me let me stop you there because i've got a question which is directly relates to this which is a a quote from one of your previous interviews which i think was from 2019 so pretty pretty recent well the quote is if you survey the history of music we are in one of the most innovative eras ever yeah and i'm pretty sure you were referring to music tech in the studio when you said when you said that. yeah it's amazing ableton and uh, logic pro tools all of these sure but one of the one of the effects of of that kind of process of technical innovation has been like breaking down the barriers to entry for music making so way more people way more people yeah that's what the cdjs are too that's what the CDJs are too. You know, it's, it's like yeah, yeah, sure. Well, exactly. This, well, this, this is this is my question, right? So, how do you how do you rationalise that really positive effect in one sense of that innovation versus the other effect, which is this kind of avalanche of kind of good enough music? If you see what I mean. Uh, I I am not really aware of. The, the the decline in quality of music or anything i i also don't keep up because my passions are in providing my own music for djing at this point so i i ha i'm unaware of that but i will say that um it's been great just to see it's inevitable so um you know the 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 gatekeeping aspect of like the turntables and stuff there is a gatekeeping aspect there, and, but that's um, not really what I'm about. You know, the more the merrier. I, I'm like a well, I always say I'm a well-wisher. Like I I wish people well, you know what I'm saying? Like I, I'm not really uh, out here trying, except in self-defense occasionally, if, you know, in the business, sometimes people can be nasty, but, but I, I would never uh, like hate on someone you know what i mean it's, i just would like to see everyone succeed you know so I, I i can't you know i can't speak on the decline of music or anything but i can say that the 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 crop of djs that every five years there's a new crop of like the 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 main exciting dj the one that get the press attention i should say yeah you know like every five years there's a new cycle and they're as good as ever i mean you know it's i was one of those too um a lot of my career is, um, I had been doing it a long time before Resident Advisor came along and they put me on the map. So, you know, I had, every, everyone gets their chance, I think, you know, and I like what the young people are doing. You know, the generation, like, like all the fast shit, you know what I mean? I like all that. I don't, I don't, I'm not playing it, but um, I, I like all, you know, when I'm talking about the fast shit, the, the fast, the fast stuff in Berlin. Yeah, well, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. You know, it's like, yep. it's like another example of them looking at like, an, of, of another, of a different generation looking at like what was already status quo and saying, no, we won't be doing that either. We, we know what I mean? Yeah. So that stuff, that stuff is exciting to me in the same way that hearing Run DMC not have melodies is exciting because it's raw. You know, it's like, it's got that optimism that it, it's, there's only one, there's like, there's only one generation of people in their 20s that have that in that optimism and enthusiasm you know 25 to 35 years old that that age is like a very admirable thing to see cuz you never want to forget that mindset even if you've been in the business 
wait longer than me. I mean, there's, you know, guys uh, of like Francois K and stuff, you know, those guys are still doing what they do because they never forgot how it felt when they were 27, 28 years old and doing it. You know what I mean? So I love to see what they do because it's so exciting. Who else would think of that? The old guys aren't going to think like, well, take it, beat matching out of the equation. Take, take the tempos out, out of, put them out of control. You know, the, the old guys wouldn't be innovating in that way. So it's exciting to see, you know? So yeah, I thought that was funny because at first I was shocked and then I thought about it and it's like, this is cool. This is cool. You know? So another question relating to a quote from, I'm pretty sure it's the same interview. Well, not a quote, but a story. So the, the one about you taking a CD of your early tracks in to be listened to by an engineer who you were working oh Kilgore right right and just getting torn out by him right yeah he he didn't like me much (laughs) I don't think I don't think he liked me much you know he's a talented guy and I'm glad I got to study with him a little bit but um I did do I don't know a few months work with him before I ever played in my music it was cool it was cool seeing like Steve Rice stuff violin phase and stuff like that playing in the sessions and understanding how those came to be you know but um i did finally bring in my music and uh i i have said that in interviews before i i said it once and then interviewers have asked me about it in in future interviews so it's kind of like a feedback loop um but but i will say that was a great experience for me and it gave me a thick skin and you need it because then when you get in the business it's way worse you know um but um he told me we were listening to it and we were about 80 bars into the first track. And I said, oh, should I, should I stop it now? You know, is that enough? And he said, yeah, yeah, stop it. Um, you know, uh, uh, we, we turned the music off and he said, okay, here's the truth. Cause you need to hear this. This is what I love about New York too. Cause they're not candy coating anything of those studios there. And the mentality of the musicians there is, is the business, you know? It's real, you know, but um, he said, well, you know, honestly, if I put this on and if you weren't in the room and I just put this on, it w- I would throw it in the trash. You know, I would I wouldn't l- listen to it further. It'd be in the garbage now, you know, and then he went to tell me why and stuff, and, you know, but that was like, oh, man, it crushed me. So you got some detailed f- feedback as well as the just the um... it, it, it crushed me. Oh, I'm sure. But I'm it, sure. it was like it was like more honest than I'd ever heard. You know what I mean? Like more, you know, I mean. Yeah, is that about my music anyway? It's not like I. It's not like I'd never been around grizzly dudes in the studio that like teach you things in a. Well, well listen, listen. My my question about this was going to be right because I get sent stuff from people all the time for the for the label, and um, I'm listening to loads of young kids' music, and. I would, I would never say that to someone. Do you know what I mean? But, but partly, but, oh, it's a different era too. I, I don't well, even think. This, okay, so hey, okay, hand that. Let, let me let me finish the question because because this is what I'm getting at. It is a different era. But do you think? Because you've just said that you actually got quite a lot of positive out of that experience. And like, to what extent is it a positive thing to be able to hear that and to be able to kind of dish out that real kind of brutal kind of brutal criticism basically because I mean I mean you know you need that yeah. you need that in your career nobody wants to be I mean nobody wants to give it to you the you know but or maybe some teachers are might feel inclined I mean I personally also wouldn't want to 
tell someone that. But you know what? You're going to, every up and comer is going to have a experience like that, if not several. And, but the, the, but, but that one is notable for me because I, that hurt me for like five years. That hurt me for like five years, you know? Right. I, I, I thought about that for a long time, you know, like not every day, but I mean, sometimes I'd be sitting down to make music and that thought would happen. You know what I mean? And that, that happened for like five years, you know? And what it did is like, uh, you can't hurt my feelings anymore. <laughs> I like you, 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 you can't tell me, it's, you know, like you, you, a person at this point in my career can't, can't th- th- there's no words that can um, penetrate my, uh, my own understanding, my own world. You can't get in. You know what I mean? So that was impor- it was important for me to hear. I maybe wouldn't want to do that to someone. Generally, what I do, people send me music. I skim it like a DJ in a record shop, you know? And then if I like it, I give it a, another 30 seconds or a minute. And uh, I'll, I'll write them back and tell them. If I don't like it, then I, uh, you're not going to hear from me. You know what I mean? So I don't, that's how I do it. I don't, I, I don't really dish out the critique. I mean, I can't think if I've, I don't think I've ever one time criticized anyone, you know? So what I do is a, a policy of silence. And then, you know, if, what I really enjoy doing is writing people and telling them, don't worry, man, you're going to do it. Don't worry, lady, you're going to do it. You know, you just have to stick with it. I do like, I do enjoy those, you know what I mean? Because um, that's like putting more positivity out there. But this is kind of in line with what you asked me about the record business and the industry in the 90s and in, 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 in actually just in reality from the 80s more is that people were mean to each other. Right. Like that was, that was part of life, you know what I mean? I, I don't think people are that mean anymore because... I, uh, quality of life is better, but uh, you know, there, I mean, there's there's still shitty people out there. But what I'm saying is, like, it was dark. The '80s was dark. The the beginning of the '90s. Put it this way: the murder record has never been higher in New York City than uh, whatever years I was there. '91 was the peak, right? Something yeah. like you know. I mean, so that's the reality that you know. This is. Um, Things like the crack epidemic, AIDS, murder, these things, you know, they have an effect on the way people treated each other. What you have now is school shootings, terrorism, things like this that are tragic and obviously so, so damaging to society, but they're, they're not causing quite as much infliction in people's interactions with with each other on a day-to-day basis. You know, you can go to a grocery store now and someone will be nice to you. You know what I'm saying? It was not like that in the 80s. It was very common that you would go into a grocery store to buy something and the person would be rude as hell, you know? And that would happen all day long. It was just a different it was just a different world, you know? So, um that all that stuff comes into play. So, murder rate peaking in the 90s, peaking 91 brings us back to Rudy Giuliani. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> so... Yeah, he killed the club culture. 
That was like his first order of business. Right, okay, so... Yeah, I mean, and he would take credit for bringing down the murder rate as well, probably without much uh, merit. But so yeah, so so let's let's get back to that. Um, tell me what happened with that because I think it was using some arcane old law or something along those lines. So t- tell me about what happened with the um, New York club scene. They did what is commonly called s- subversion in in government circles or in enforcement circles, but. They, no one was get behind a law that outlet, uh, uh, banned dancing. Nobody would, you know. So what they did is capitalize on a law that was already in the books that had its own roots in oppression and in that era, um, extreme racism also, you know, like literally trying to keep races from mixing. <laughs> That's where the law comes from, you know. Like, I don't mean mixing even like, starting families together as a part. Yeah, just socially, right? <laughs> yeah, like literally keeping them out of the same restaurants and venues, you know. I mean, that's, that's how, the, how, to the extreme, you know. Um, and those were the cabaret laws. So the law said you can't, there's no dancing in the venue unless you have a license. So what they did is just like stop giving licenses, you know. It, it was common practice. You could get one, anybody could get one to open a venue in New York for however many decades. You know, just like you want to open a shoe store, you know, you just open one. You know what I mean? It's not like you need a friggin' shoe license, shoe selling license, special shoe selling license, you know. And um, New York had moved far along, way beyond the cabaret era of of the racist and oppressive jazz era, you know. Um, So to pull that law out of nowhere and to enforce it and to work that law to their favor was, uh, you know, one of the things he's most infamous for. And it did work. It totally killed the club culture. That's a f- That did happen. Let me ask you, just before we go on, um, what do you perceive the motive for that to have been? Like, was this purely just a socially conservative thing? Was it dressed up as a kind of anti-organized crime thing? Like, what, what was the... Yeah. No, that was anti-organized crime. Right. That was this whole thing. That's what he ran on. That wasn't he didn't he didn't run saying I'm going to clean up nightlife. He had been a attorney who had had some notable successes prior to being mayor in in anti mafia cases, right? Yeah, and then he was saying he'd clean up the piers. He was cleaning up the the fish markets and stuff, which were all mafia run. Right. So that was what he was. That was his platform that he was running on. Was saying I'm going after organized crime. You know, I lived in New Jersey in the eighties. In like, like it was mafia. Like it was, right. it was like that, you know? My best friend's father got shot. He ran, he ran a, a fruit stand and he was shot and robbed. He always, he always had the fattest wad of cash. I, I um, and I liked hanging out with him, be, with my friend because we always, he always got new everything. You know what I mean? You know, but at the time, you know, you, 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 that that was like reality. What it was, it was just normal reality. Everybody was, you know. But I remember when he got shot, and then it was then I. That's when I learned what a bookie was, because I didn't know. I didn't know. I know he had the fat wad of money, and I know he worked at a fruit stand. You know what I mean? But I didn't. That's how kids find out about the stuff that's going on around them. 
You know what I mean? Right, right, right. He was running a book, and that's why he got, okay, that's the involvement. And, and so Giuliani was saying, like, I'm going after the guys running the fruit stands. I'm going after the fish market. I'm going after this. I'm going after that. You know, the, the, the nightclub thing just came under that, but that was not his platform or anything. That was, like, probably the icing on the cake for him. But uh, that's, you know, he was just saying hard on crime. Now, here's the problem. It's great they cleaned up the city. That's great, okay? But there's just a different mafia there now, which is big, the big money. But it's, this, it's no different. It's the same corruption and the same problems and everything else. I mean, it may not be crack, uh, but um, now you have, the city will all, always have its share of problems, you know? Well, I mean, like the political corruption in New York State is just legendary, isn't it? It's some crazy amount of, like the proportion of state legislators that have been sent to prison in New York State is just, in, just incredible, right? I remember reading about that. Um, I don't know anything about that, but that sounds about right, you know? Yeah. But but um, I don't even think I've ever worked in a restaurant that paid, <laughs> that, like, that wasn't fudging the books, you know what I mean? It's part of the New York culture. And that comes out of the Prohibition era. But I will tell you about when Giuliani was closing up the clubs and all that, that actually, to be honest with you, the clubbing culture had already peaked. It was already going down. Right. The clubs, the club kids stuff, that has already hit its peak. The rave stuff was already well done, you know. Um, so we're in the kind of mid, not, we're in like mid, late 90s now. Is this kind of where we are? The peak was 93. Yep. The peak was 92, 93. And then by 95, it was like, pretty uncool in america it wasn't like yeah it wasn't you know so i don't know when Giuliani was doing all that funny stuff i think it was started in 94 it was after dinkins maybe maybe that was 90 maybe that was 93 so maybe it had a bigger effect than i realized but there was also a cultural shift of uh like this isn't cool anymore you know what i mean so i don't even know if one caused the other or not. I, I, I don't know that if Julian Warner is responsible for that or if he just wrote, was capitalistic and rode a wave, you know what I mean? Because the culture was already going that way. I do remember some notable clubs having... The, the, and New York was a lot harsher. That's what I was trying to... The overall thing I was trying to communicate to you about how it's, society was different. Because I had my own experience, actually. I... Uh, I um, was at, I think, the Roseland in 1993 at a rave party, and I got sick. And I went out into the alley to, to throw up, and uh, the garbage man came. And he was like, hey, yay, are you, are you okay? And when he got close, he hit me in the head with a pipe. Wow. And he took all my, all my clothes. He left me there in Long John's, and it, this isn't in February or January. Left me there in the alleyway, propped up against the wall in um, like my long johns. You know what I mean? Wow. You know, Jeez. you know, and a, and a t-shirt, and he took all my everything. You know, and that was a garbage man working for the city. You understand? You know, that was while he was on the job, like just as he was going about his job. You know what I mean? So, um, so that was a different era. You know, but uh, but okay, I will tell you this. Okay, this is something that's really cool that I don't think people point out. But over the years, when that Giuliani stuff happened and when all the clubs couldn't dance, there was a club that, this is the dawn now, I think this is maybe 98, and there was a big revival of electro. Right. Mixed with, mixed with like 
synth pop new 80s stuff and there was a club in lower manhattan off canal street called i think it was called fun or it may have been called exit i don't remember but this was a very quintessential club this is like where people like fisher spooner come from right 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 you know um peaches um this club couldn't get a cabaret license and they organized the seating to say sit this is on the dance floor of the club it said sit massive dance floor like the i don't know 50 60 seats like that spelled out the word sit right and pe- people of course still had the thirst for electronic music and for techno you know so it's interesting that electro era because actually that was came out of people finding a way to enjoy hearing electronic dance music loud and getting around the cabaret laws. And there would have been no, this scene that developed out of the early Doppler effect, seven inches, um, I to F's record, um, the, the space invaders one, um, Fisher Spooner came out of that and they went on to be totally global and like, you know what they became. All of that stuff came from not being able to dance. So all that was became music where the performance, you know, especially on the New York side, the performance aspect, because we have a history of performance art going back to the 80s, like, um, you know. So actually something great came out of that era because, you know, when you see, a, I don't even know if they're together or what, but, you know, Fisher Spooner were doing these extravagant, costume-laden sh- performance shows Peaches had became well known for having this incredible live show. That was people that came from not being able to dance in electronic music right, clubs. Right. You know what I mean? So, so, so it's at least something interesting that was spawned from that. You know, that went on all through way past the tra- the trade center collapse, like way into like. I mean, I don't think clubs clubs picked up a little bit during the minimal boom. You know, like when was the minimal boom? When uh, yeah, when was Cadenza Records so big? 2001 to 2005, I think. I guess that's sort of era, 2006 maybe. Yeah. Whenever Cadenza Records was big, they were just doing one after another of like incredible records. Um, clubbing got big again in New York. Right. But, it, but, but that was uh, after like a 10-year thing where um, not only was it not possible, but it like kind of like nobody even thought it was cool you know like how people look at the disco era with warmth they like they're like you know you read these editorials about how it was started by these disenfranchised people and you know it's kind of like heroic and stuff nobody was thinking uh, recognizing any aspect of that heritage uh, in new york from the years of like yeah like you said 95 to 2005 like it just, nobody cared right i, I remember I was just reading about like Twilo, which I guess happened in that sort of era, but then Twilo was sort of seen as well. Hang on, maybe you can clarify this for me because I'm not quite sure in my mind. Like Sound Tunnel wasn't there, and then Twilo came out of Sound Tunnel. Is that right? Am I right? The sound system. Yeah, they used the same sound system, right? From from one to the other. Is that correct? From Tunnel. Oh man. No, it's not from Tunnel. It's from. Uh... I, I'm really confused. T- 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 <laughs> Is it the Sound Factory? Sound Factory. That's it. That's it. Not not the Sound Tunnel. Yeah. 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 It's the Sound Factory. Okay. So okay. So excuse excuse my <laughs> inaccurate. I went to Twilo. That that was great. But let me let me how's that? Let me just clarify. The reason that I knew about that 
was because of a Sasha and Digweed thing there, which was heavily written up in the UK press because it was like Sasha and Digweed go to go to New York and take over New York and all that all this bullshit. That was a big deal here too, though. Right? Okay. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm not in New York now. I don't mean here now. I mean that was a big deal in New York. People would come out to hear Sasha. In fact, them and also Sven Veith would be the ones where like because there's a thing in New York. I don't think it's that way anymore. I think there's a local scene now. In the 90s, when I was a local DJ, everyone would come out for you. You know what I mean? But that stopped happening. The only people for those, those Twilo years and stuff, except for Tenegli would pull people, but, but mostly that was like the start of like, oh, so-and-so's coming from Europe to play here. Right, right. It's the international guest culture. Yeah, it's like, oh, so-and-so from Ibiza, this guy plays in Ibiza, you're going to hear him at Twilo, you got to come for this, you know what I mean? That, that, I think Sasha and Digweed may have been the first, first ones where like, and uh, I think maybe Sven Veith deserves credit there too, where like people were not coming out to hear each other in New York back then, but they would come out to hear these international acts, which is obviously a big part of the culture now is like to hear someone from another country do what you do, you know what I mean? Mm. So I think they were some of the first, you know, Sasha Digweed. People would go out for those nights, definitely. Packed house. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. And Teneglia would pull them too. I used to, I've heard Teneglia at Twilo, you know, he, he would pull people too. You know? So, okay, can you just correct my uh, shaky knowledge then? So Sound Factory was um, not around when Limelight was around. Can you give me, just give me a sort of potted history of what, what the big and cool clubs were? In the 90s? I don't think Sound Factory was a Gation Club. The Gation Clubs was uh, Palladium, Club USA, Tunnel, and the Limelight. Uh, maybe at some others, but I'm not aware. You know? The Palladium was like where more like commercial you could hear like, like I don't know, Madonna records? or I don't know. Like You know what I mean? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yep. And um, the Tunnel had hip-hop, skateboarding, and some techno nights too. I loved Club USA also. That was a very glitzy club, but I loved going there because, man, that was, you never felt more on top of the world than that because that was in Midtown in Times Square. And if you went onto the roof there, you were like, that, that was always exciting to be in. You just felt like you were on top of the world, you know, to be in that club and on the roof. You know what I mean? Like looking out at, at uh, the, the skyline and, I mean that that's like well there is no there's no other skyline like that in in the world it's just it never gets old yeah imagine being at a nightclub being on the roof of a nightclub uh in in the middle of New York in midtown you know i mean it's just it's like felt cool but um but you know there's also clubs okay there there another one that's important is NASA which was at the shelter and that was the the rave party you know like that was like, this had nothing to do with house music, though. Let me be clear about that. My club music cassettes, that culture of just a few years earlier, I had no idea that the rave stuff that, the, that was like kind of like European-themed dance parties, you know what I mean? I had no idea that was related to house music. I did not know right. that until 10 years, until like journalists and stuff said like, well, these guys brought house music to Manchester and this is what it evolved into. I, I honestly never made that connection. I, I did not realize, except I heard, of course, some sampling of like Master C and J or like a Liz Torres vocal sampler or whatever. But, you know, I, I, I did not realize that, that that music was in any 
like evolved of house music. <laughs> I didn't know that until years later, you know. But uh, but I was I was as excited about the rave stuff as I was about the house music. You know what I mean? This, this is like four or five years later, and that party was called NASA. If you lived in New York when you were like seventeen years old, that fucking party was that was the party. I mean, that party was. Uh, that was a very cool, very hip place to be at the time. You know what I mean? So what kind of records were getting played there? Um, British breakbeat records. Right. So, yeah, I don't know. Um, like, I, I'll tell you one of the anthems is called, a, a record that I love called Let Me Be Your Fantasy. Yeah, right, right, yeah. So like the kind of early hardcore stuff, yeah. Yeah, ba- Baby D, Let Me Be yeah. Your Fantasy. I, I love this record. Um such a great song, you know. But that was like one of the anthems. Um, Josh Wink used to play there. Moby used to play there. Who yeah, else? Yeah, okay. Uh, D, the guy DB, of course. Oh, DB, yeah. Okay. Um, I, I got to know him, actually, when I first started going over to New York to play dubstep parties, and he was doing drum and bass, actually. Okay. Um, which, had, which had obviously come out of that hardcore scene I've just yeah. put the dots together to conclude yeah yeah okay that's super interesting right yeah yeah so he had that that club if you were like if you were like 18 17 18 years old there was two clubs the limelight both in Manhattan there was other parties actually out in Brooklyn like storm raves and stuff but um but but definitely guaranteed aside from like illegal parties and all that but just like very influential parties was the limelight and NASA, those influenced everybody in New York City at the time, you know, definitely big, big parties and ones that I went to that, you know, changed my life. Yeah, you know? sure. Those were very important parties. So um, the, the, the limelight had um, Prozac and the other guy was called Kiyoki. He was like the star. And, but Prozac was a, was a, a, a supporting DJ as, as, as well there that I, someone that I learned a lot from, you know. Um, but, uh, but I never even met Prozac until years later. I, I met him like in 95 or something. Right, right, right. You know, I didn't even, I had never even met him during the years I'm talking about now, which is like 92, 93. Um, those time, that, though, the, 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 especially the limelight, you'll just, you see a lot of comparisons to Berkheim. I put it this way, when my records got big and, and they were inviting me to play Berghain and stuff like that, I felt right at home. It was like, it was like reminding me a lot of the abandon and the joyous like f- f- spirit of feeling like you could get away with anything. You know what I mean? That was kind of like the limelight feeling was like, oh, you can, you can, you can party here out in the open without concern, you know, um, that that as a as a young person that was exciting to see people like drug using whatever you know not 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 that I want to glorify it but but at the time that was exciting to see a club that you could openly that people were open not even one iota concerned about law enforcement you know it just all of that stuff seems so like free at the time and and of course there's a lot of like very positive and optimistic youthful moments there. So when Bergheim was calling me, it was like, oh, I, I could do this. I get it. You know what I mean? You know, so that, you know, and the NASA thing, I think the NASA thing never saw any type of retro love 
ever. Right. <laughs> so I, so I, I, I don't know why. <laughs> you know, it's funny because I mean, I've heard of Limelight, of course, and you know that's a pretty well storied kind of institution. But yeah, I wasn't familiar with uh, the NASA thing at all. NASA was extremely popular with young people. It was the shit. You couldn't get better. It was the thing where people were waiting outside of the line for hours. You know, it was it was all of that for. I, I want to say people. I, I must I must have been seventeen at the time. Seventeen, sixteen, seventeen. Yeah, maybe until I was like eighteen, nineteen, whatever years those were. I think NASA went on for two years, maybe whatever the years are. I don't remember honestly a lot of the. I don't remember a lot of the dates and things just because. I've lived a whole life since then. Yeah, of course. So, you know, I might get this, you know, but, you know, it was like 92, you know what I mean, that, that time. And, uh, yeah, the limelight too. So you can imagine as a local DJ for me, oh, that reminds me, I want to tell you about some local clubs though because we, you've only talked about the big clubs. But there were, um, there were some clubs that are notable that are not talked about um, as far as that in New York. And that is a club called Robots, Save the Robots it was called. Oh, wait, was it called Save the Robots? Yeah, yeah. Save the Robots was the one in the 80s and the 90s. And that was like a cellar, you know, like a little cellar club. And I spent a lot of time there, man. That 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 was like a very exciting place too. And there was a place called Pyramid that had some good parties on Avenue A. A- egg, the egg parties at Nell's. There, were, there was a lot of stuff that's overlooked. Is this in, this, in that kind of rave era that you're talking about so in in that yeah period well after the rave thing was deep house right you know or they kind of happened at the same time but the deep house thing totally took over because the rave thing a big part of the rave thing in the new yorkers anyway there was two things that happened wu-tang clan came out that pretty much like made everyone look at each other wearing like big baggy clothes and (laughs) right yeah like walking around with toys on them and stuff and say like, this, this is wrong what we're doing here. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like this is, this is not, this, this is no longer know. cool. <laughs> yeah. It happened basically overnight. You know, that, that squashed any rape thing in New York, you know? And um, yeah, I'm trying to think of some other, oh, Nation. There was a big club, uh, a small club called Nation that had some important parties. But yeah, the, the, the deep house thing when Wu-Tang came out, that was the end of the rave. That just, nobody was wearing baggy, n- not like that style of like extremely baggy pants. Yeah, it's a different kind of baggy clothing then, right? <laughs> no, no, yeah, and it was not like, well, some of that stuff crossed over because Polo Sport, the big label then was Polo Sport. It was like as big as whatever's big now. Every Polo Sport was the streetwear, you know what I mean? So some of that stuff carried over, but not the uh, candy looking stuff like, because you had, you had, you understand, like you had people wearing like stuffed animals on their backpacks and stuff, and going to parties. <laughs> the you know same I mean? shit they're wearing now at Electric Daisy or whatever. Oh, is that right? Okay, yeah, that stuff was in, like immediately considered silly uh, when Wu Tang Clan came up. Like honestly, that's what happened. It was like a matter of months before Wu Tang took over New York City, and nobody was like it. Just things became a lot more real and a lot more serious you know what i mean yeah, so okay. um you know just things got more hip-hop sure. you know because that's that's new york's backbone you know what i mean so things just got more you know it was like it was a tangent all the rave stuff but then things got in overnight more hip-hop you know what i mean yeah so let, let me ask you 
about Berlin because we've talked about New York for ages, um, but you mentioned the Berghain and the sort of similarities, certainly in sort of atmosphere to some of those to the to the night New York clubs of the of the eighties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so what I was going to ask you was, um, I mean, I when I moved over, like I wasn't like looking for anything in particular um, in terms of the club scene, but I was immediately struck by just how different it was compared to what London had become. So I had some experience of going out in London in the mid-90s when there was still some pretty wild stuff going on. Okay. Um, and like the uh, the kind of, the, the scene that I was confronted with in, in Berlin was was sort of reminiscent of, of that thing that I had been introduced to when I first started going out as a kid, like 10 or 12 years earlier. So when did you first go to Berlin? And to what extent is it similar? Are there, were there similarities? I mean, I um, the the first time I went to Berlin was to play Bergheim. That was um, I, I want to say two thousand nine. Yeah, and it's just been like an amazing, extremely, extremely wild, super fun ride ever since. It didn't stop, yep. you know. So you moved over pretty quick then afterwards. Yeah, I spent another year touring. At that time, I was playing every week. Every weekend, I mean. So it was like having to fly from New York to Europe every weekend. I did that for like a year and then I just said, well, this isn't working. You yeah. know? I had an opportunity to take a sublet in Kreuzberg through uh, someone um, involved with uh, one of the record shops here. And when I moved, I moved in, I took it for three months. And when I moved in, like a few weeks later, he called me and said, actually, I, I've decided not to come back. So if you just want to live here, the place is yours. So it's like an incredible f- f- good fortune. So that's that's how that unfolded, and um, and that really helped me in my career. Um, if if you're in America and you're trying to get your DJ career going, or South America, or wherever, Thailand, wherever you are, I do recommend moving to Europe to uh, to get things to to get to get to the work. You know, the parties are great here. The people are great. The, they they. Uh, in my experience, they love the music, um, you know. So it's definitely if you're trying to do a DJ career, like get get on over here. It's where you want to be, you know. If you're trying to do this stuff, so yeah, I've loved it. I've loved it ever since I got here. I've set down some real roots now. Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of like my home. You know what I mean? My my father passed away. He my sister left when the Trade Center collapsed, like the like September twelfth. She left, you know. Really well, because 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 uh, her dog got whenever she was down there, and when when uh, when everybody was running, like you see on the videos and stuff. I mean, we all have our own stories to tell about the trade center collapse, how it affected us. But her dog got hit by one of the cars, and it died that day. So she had the trade center, and the 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 the, the, the in the chaos of getting away, the dog died. That was it for her. She left. She moved out of New York the next day. And then my father stayed there until um, just uh, right before the pandemic. He passed on. And then that was it. That was the end of my family in New York. That was who was in New York. So then, you know, um, you know, I lived there from 81 to uh, 2009 um, with a couple stints here and there. Like I went to Alaska for six months. I went to Austin for a year or so as an adult when I grew up. I mean, as an adult, like trying to uh, trying to like try different different yep. types of life, 
You know what I mean? Um, lived, lived, lived a couple places like that for... I mean, those are two very different places, right? <laughs> I didn't like either one of them. I didn't like either one. Oh, I liked Alaska, but I, once it got cold, I didn't like that. You know what I mean? Yeah, fair enough. But, um, but I, neither one of them suited me. Like, I just uh, love New York and that, that you know. Um, but like I say now, I, I, and I do love New York. I'm diehard, love, love New York. You know what I mean? Um, but, um, and I, you know, I don't give enough credit to New Jersey because I talk about New York a lot. But I actually lived in the 80s. Like, for example, I lived in the 80s in New Jersey. That's where I grew up. Mm. And like, like uh, it's got to be less than two miles from the Trade Center. Like, I, that thing was right out the window all the time. I, I would have to look on a map. I, I, it's got to be a mi- couple miles from the Trade Center. You know, like a, a surrounding yeah, yeah. Um, city. Uh, um, New, Newark is a surrounding uh, Newark is a city on the other side of the river, but it's just an extension of New York, you know. But, um, you know, New, New Jersey and my experiences taking the the bus into Manhattan was so exciting as a youngster but also there was a skate rink in New Jersey that I went to every Friday for a year one of my years fourth grade or something called skate 22 and that's where I learned that you actually you asked me earlier about the freestyle scene well that that was a sector of it definitely because the 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 Skate 22, the roller rink I went to was like all about freestyle and it had a, a wicked DJ booth, mm. you know? That was like where I would first see DJing and like see it up close and stuff. And they would play hip hop and freestyle too and club music like Blue Monday. I I remember hearing that, you know, and being like, what? The f- <laughs> this is so cool. This is so cool, you know? Um, and and so New Jersey had a big impact on me too, because because a roller roller at the time roller skating was a big deal. It was like where you go on the weekends as a youngster. So yeah, New Jersey too. I love all that. I love New York. I love New Jersey. But um, but now I feel like I've I'm I'm a Berliner. You know, I'm just I'm I, the commentary on my music now. I'm not even trying to tell people where I come from anymore. I'm trying to comment. Uh, on my current experiences, you know, and my my life, um, my 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 life as a working artist, and all of that stuff mm-hmm. nowadays is revolves around Berlin, you know, and my experiences here. Yeah, I love it. So, just in answer to my like specific question about this, like the similarities to the extent that they exist between that kind of early to mid nineties era New York and the Berlin club scene specifically like I mean the clubs like to what extent does that exist and what's your experience of that like it's it's just scenes of it's I was telling you that magic age of like people 25 to 35 that like they have this optimism about life that is so fearless and it's just that energy is awesome and you no matter how much older you get as an artist anyway maybe not as a bus driver but as an artist you you want to be aware of that energy always it's you, there's a very it's a lot of inspiring things happen from that en- energy you know what i mean and berghain when i got there had the same energy as uh, the limelight um not not to make comparisons that they i don't even know if they would appreciate that comparison or not but it was like um hedonistic wild um free feeling very free and very open to um like for example 
uh, open sexual sexuality mm-hmm. and um, artists meeting other artists and exchanging ideas, uh, people living their art, you know. Um, I mean, the only thing that was missing is Grace Jones, you know. I, I, the only thing that was missing was like seeing Grace Jones sitting there, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It was like had that same, you know, um, the excitement of waiting in that line for an hour to get in, you know. That's like how Club USA and Limelight in these clubs, they used to do it. And I think that's from the disco era, actually. I think that's, that comes from like... The way, it was, the, way, the way the lines was explained to me is that the reason they let people slowly into clubs is so that there's a hype thing for people walking by and, and also um, for the people waiting in line. It's just like a little payoff, you know? Um, and then there's and then there's the reason that security's doing it, which is to weed out drunk people or people that might be aggressive. You know what I mean? So it's you know that's the thinking behind making people wait, even though <laughs> yeah, even despite the fact that you could easily let people in immediately. You know what I mean? Like they do it slowly on pur- on purpose. But um, yeah, um, uh, uh, what else about Berlin? Um, yeah, well, all, all I can say really about to speak on like Bergheim Panorama Bar or whatever is like, I, I have had some of the best singular musical moments of my life as a musician and artist playing in Panorama Bar. It is magic. It does have a mystical quality that cannot be explained. It, 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 it absolutely is totally deserves the... Um, the mystique and the recognition and the reputation. It is that. It does have that. It's magical. It is one of those places, like I'm sitting here talking about the world, the clubs, the world or whatever, the, the limelight, whatever world, uh, whatever club you want to talk about. Um, it does have that and it, it will be that way. You know, there's other ones too. Like I, I played a club in Berlin called um, Tape Club. Hmm. There used to be parties there. These parties were incredible. They had a tree in the middle of the room. And um, I don't know what it did for <laughs> making people feel like it made people feel like they were dancing in the the rainforest or something. It just it gave that this huge tree in the middle of the dance floor. Or you know, it was just awesome. I'm playing at Trezor this weekend. That's a club with like over 30 years of history now. You know what I mean? Putting out incredible artists and records. You know what I mean? Like institution style stuff. So all that stuff you hear about Berlin, all of it you read about how great it is, it's true. It is like that. You know, if you're into this music and stuff, get over here, you know, and come and make your contribution because this is where the... Ber- Berlin and London, uh, uh, well, I, I should say all of UK, actually. Um, and uh, Ber- But uh, Berlin, Berlin is where a lot of the dialogue is happening, mm. you know, because the, the, the technology companies are here. Right. You know? So, so if you want to come and be in the industry, um, the, the dialogues are happening here. This is where the music is getting, um, where the music software is getting made. So that's where the ideas are being passed around and coming from. And you know, so you know, yeah. If you're sitting over there in uh, Bali and you have got a great party scene there, and then you think, how can I, how can I contribute globally? A, a good thing to do would be to try Berlin. Mm. I mean, you know. So that's what I could say about Berlin. It's a great place for an artist to live and work. Yeah, absolutely. This has been great, man. Thank you so much for doing it. We've done two hours, so I think I think um, <laughs> yeah. Jesus. <laughs> I, yeah, I I I um 
I guess I'm running out of things to say anyway. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, this has been super interesting. Thank you. Yeah, that was Levon Vincent and super interesting conversation. I think you'll agree. I really enjoyed diving into that early 90s, mid 90s period of New York with him. Uh, lots of stories that I wasn't aware of, lots of details that I wasn't aware of. Mentioned at the top that I displayed my total ignorance on <laughs> the topic, which is pretty glaring. I didn't listen to it back, but um, like I said, we don't sugarcoat things here. If I'm dumb, then I'll happily be dumb in public. But yeah, great to get his insights. And um, yeah, as I mentioned at the top, there's going to be a bit more of that stuff coming up in f- subsequent weeks. A bit more New York stuff because we haven't really touched on it previously. We've hit a few other scenes around the world, but New York in detail was something we hadn't really done too much of until today. Um, Certainly not 90s New York anyway. We talked about mid-2000s New York with Machine Drum and uh, Jacqueline a little bit too. But yeah, this was something a little bit different and more to come, like I said, on that. So as I mentioned at the top, next week we are launching subscription. Going to be on Patreon details in full next week but there will be an AMA next week so if you've got a question for me then drop it on Twitter at Scuba Official or on the Discord hotflushrecordings.com slash Discord and I will answer it next week on the AMA show which will be subscription only certainly most of it will be anyway maybe you'll put up 15 minutes of it or something on the regular feed just as a little taster enticing morsel to get you to uh, to subscribe but we're not going to do that with the main pod as I mentioned this is going to stay free to wear so I'm really relying mostly on the kindness of your hearts to support the show um, and as I said it does cost us money to do it and I do want to spend some money to try and grow the show on ads and that kind of thing I mean ads advertising the show not ads on the show so yeah that's why we're doing this so gratitude will be abundant if you were to participate. Anyway, this Friday we have my collaboration with Bakongo, the second part of the release. It's called 105. It's got a remix of Over Again by Hassan Abu Alam. That's out on Hot Flush this Friday, hotflush.bandcamp.com. And thanks to everyone supporting recent releases from the likes of Anna Cost, Closet Yee, Anna's got another track actually coming up on the main label. Her, her previous two EPs on Who Whom, but she's got a single track coming on Hot Flush and there's going to be an EP as well, some stage, not too distant future. Big fan of Anna Cost, as you will know if you've been listening to this. I think lots of people are beginning to take notice of her and she definitely deserves it. She's been working super hard the last couple of years and it's really beginning to come together. So yeah, lots of good stuff to come from her. I think we're done here. For another week We've got a big episode next week as i mentioned we're launching the subscription but the uh general pod for next week is a good one so hold tight for that and um yeah thanks for listening just before we go if you haven't done it already leave us a review or a rating i know i always say it but it really does help as of next week you're going to be hearing me banging on about patreon as well every week maybe i'll replace the ratings appeal for an appeal to give us money on patreon i'm not sure which is worse actually but um, <laughs> either way, well, this week, actually, you're just restricted to the rating thing. So please do that if you haven't done already. 
Join us in Discord, hotflushrecordings.com slash Discord, and follow that Spotify playlist. Link in the show notes. I'll be back here same time, same place next week for the next episode of the Not A Diving Podcast. Thank you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.